text for this morning's sermon is Genesis 33, verse 17, to the end of chapter 34. Jacob has met Esau. They have been reconciled together. And Esau has now gone on his way back to Mount Seir. And we read about what Jacob does from there. In Genesis 33, beginning at verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamer, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamer, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, and the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves. We will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words placed, pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamer and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. 
Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of his city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of Jacob, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Thus far, our reading from God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is this sorry story about Dinah and the people of Shechem doing in the Bible? Often when we read scripture, we're looking for passages that are encouraging and inspiring. This story is not one of them. If we want to read about sexual assaults and murder, we can turn to the local news. But we don't expect to read such a depressing story in the Bible. Children's story Bibles pass by this story. Pastors don't like preaching on it. If you happen to read through Genesis, this kind of story makes you cringe. Why does the Bible include this story about the rape of the teenage daughter of Jacob and Leah? Why include an account of how Simeon and Levi exacted revenge against Shechem by slaughtering him and all the men in the city? There are lots of victims in this story. They do not seem to have a voice. We wonder, whatever happened to Dinah as a defiled woman? Did she ever marry or bear children? Or did this event doom her to a sad and difficult life? What happened to the women and children of Shechem who were captured by Jacob's sons? What kind of life did they live? The main question we face in Genesis 34 is, where is God in this story? He is not mentioned, not even once. 
Does that mean that God is absent? That he doesn't care about this tragedy? At times we can face trauma and hurt in our lives that causes us to feel abandoned by God. If he truly cares about us, why does he allow terrible things to happen in the lives of his children? Beloved, is there anything that we as 21st century Christians can learn from this story? We do confess that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we question how this particular story helps us in our walk with God. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. Be wary of compromising your faith through fellowship with ungodly people. Well, consider the danger of compromising your faith and the need for close fellowship with God. Genesis 34 begins with Dinah going out to see the people of the land. Our text doesn't say why Dinah went out to see the women of Shechem. She was only a teenager when the events of our text occurred. Perhaps she was curious about their culture. Perhaps she wanted some female company after being surrounded by a mostly male household. Yet while Dinah went out to see the women of the land, she was seen by one of the men of Shechem. The people of Shechem were ruled by Hamor the Hivite. His son Shechem, who was named after the place where they all lived, was the prince of the land. Our text describes what he did. He saw Dinah, seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. In today's language, you would say that Shechem sexually assaulted Dinah. He raped her. Our text says that by doing so, Shechem humiliated Dinah. That verb to humiliate can also be translated to oppress, to subdue, or violate, or rape. In any culture, it's a horrible thing for a woman to be forcibly taken and raped. It's a trauma that often marks people for life. It's a terribly difficult thing to overcome. That was especially the case in ancient times. Women were expected to remain sexually pure before marriage. A woman who had been defiled was often seen as damaged goods. No one wanted to marry a woman like that. Such women often had to live lonely lives without the prospect of ever having a husband or a family. In ancient Israel, where being married and having a family was extremely desirable, the crime committed against Dinah was extremely heinous. While Shechem was overtaken by lust in raping Dinah, his soul was drawn to her. Our text says that he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father and said, get me this girl for my wife. This proposal seems bizarre to us with our modern view of courtship and marriage. 
We think what self-respecting woman would be willing to undertake such a relationship? Yet marriage, even marriage contracted under initial cloud, was often considered better than the alternative of being viewed as damaged goods. From being left in the perilous position of being an aging single woman. What our text shows is that despite his sin, Shechem wanted to make an honest woman of Dinah. Later in Israel's history, we see the Lord makes allowances for precisely such situations. Exodus 22 gives these laws. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give, him, to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. These laws were enacted for the protection of women in Israelite society. If you seduced a woman and had sex with her, you were responsible to pay the bride price and to take her as your wife. If her father absolutely refused to consent to the marriage, you still had to pay the bride price, which would give the defiled woman a means of support. Our text continues by telling us about Jacob's reaction to Dinah's rape. Most fathers would move heaven and earth to protect their daughters. But Jacob didn't do anything. Our text says that he held his peace until his sons came home from the fields. Jacob said nothing. Jacob did nothing. He did not protect his daughter. He let her down. Keep in mind that Dinah was the daughter of Leah. Our text makes a specific point of mentioning that fact. Leah was the unloved wife. You wonder if Jacob's reaction may have been different if Dinah was Rachel's daughter. Contrast Jacob's lack of reaction with the reaction of his sons. They came home from the field as soon as they heard what had happened to their sister. They were filled with grief and fury. Why? Because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. The problem is that disgraceful and despicable things do happen regularly in the fallen world in which we live. So, beloved, let's consider how Jacob and Dinah got into this situation. Were the events of our text just the result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was it just an unfortunate happen chance? If we read the story of Jacob, we see that Jacob was not fully obedient to the word of the Lord. In Genesis 31, while still living with Uncle Laban, the Lord said to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. But Jacob did not go to Bethel. After meeting with Esau, the end of Genesis 33 tells us that Jacob journeyed to Succoth. 
There he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Sakoth was on the other side of the Jordan River. It was not part of the promised land. Sometime later, he moved on from there a short distance to Shechem. This was in the promised land. There, Jacob bought a piece of ground for himself. Now, our tendency is to skip over these verses. We see them as irrelevant travel notices. But they're very important in helping us understand the events of our text. It is hugely significant that Jacob crossed over into the promised land. Jacob had returned safely, not simply with food and drink for the journey, as he requested from God at Bethel. Instead, Jacob returns with wives and children, with flocks and herds. Jacob had received a great abundance through God's gracious and faithful provision. Since God has fulfilled his promises to Jacob, the next thing you would expect in the Genesis account would be for Jacob to return to Bethel to fulfill the vows he made to God there. But Jacob doesn't do that. When he crosses the Jordan to enter the land of promises, he he stops 30 kilometers short of Bethel. That's only a couple days' journey. Yet Jacob purchases land from the people of Shechem, and he settles in to live there. Self-righteously, he builds an altar to the Lord, and he calls it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. But Jacob does not do what he promised. He does not return to Bethel, to the house of God. He does not fulfill his vow to give the Lord a tenth of all the Lord had given him. What's more, Jacob settled in the vicinity of some of the Canaanite peoples. The people of Shechem were Hivites. Reminds you of the story of Abraham and Lot when they went their separate ways. Lot chose the best of the land, the Jordan Valley, which was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. He settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Genesis 13 verse 13 says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And later we read that Lot had moved into the city he lived in a house among these wicked people. Let's now go back to our text. Would Dinah's rape have happened? If Jacob had been obedient to the Lord and gone to Bethel, instead of settling among the people of the land? Consider Jacob's response to Hamer's marriage proposal. Hamer said, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Jacob 
remains silent. He knows that God has claimed him and his family as his own people. He knows that God has promised to make him into a great nation, to give him the whole land of Canaan as his inheritance. Hamer's proposal would result in an unholy alliance between the people of God and the godless Hivites. They would be assimilated into the people of the land. They would lose their status as the people of the Lord. But Jacob says nothing. Although he was the head of his family, he provides no leadership. His silence is deafening. Jacob's lack of godly leadership opens the door for his sons to act. They were filled with grief and fury. Their hearts were filled with revenge. So they came up with a deceitful strategy. They'd grown up in a household where lying and deceit were commonplace. And so that's how they act. They pretend a willingness to go along with Hamer's marriage proposal on one condition, namely that every male among the Shechemites be circumcised. They don't talk at all about being the people of God. The reason for circumcision is not that these Canaanite people might be incorporated into the people of God. Instead, they use the cloak of religion in order to advance their unholy plan. Hamer and his son Shechem went back to their people and spoke with the men at the city gate. They proposed an amalgamation of Jacob's family into their tribe. They said, let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Will not their livestock, their property, and their beasts be ours? The men of Shechem agreed that this is a good proposal. And they underwent circumcision to fulfill the conditions set by Jacob's sons. Yet a few days later, when they were still sore from being circumcised, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, came against the city while they felt secure. And they killed all the males. Then Jacob's sons came and plundered the city and took their goods, as well as their women and children. They made them their own. In the eyes of Jacob's sons, what they did was right. They felt they were avenging the rape of their sister. Their actions were prompted by grief and rage. Their hearts filled with revenge. They not only killed Shechem, the son of Hamer, for what he did. They annihilated all the men of that place for the sin of one man. Today we would call that an act of genocide. It's these sorts of actions that have prompted deep bitterness between different groups of people. Think about the bitter struggles between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, in Northern Ireland or of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or the genocide committed by the Serbs against Muslims in Bosnia. Once people start fighting, 
There's always another atrocity that needs avenging. And the result is that blood gets shed from one generation to the next. So, beloved, why was our text included in the Bible? What was the message for God's people Israel? We need to understand that the five books of Moses were originally written for God's people who were entering the promised land. They were going into a land that was inhabited by seven Canaanite nations, including the Hivites mentioned in Genesis 34. When they entered the promised land, the Lord warned them not to make a covenant with these wicked people. The Lord commanded his people not to intermarry with them, for if they did, the heathen nations would turn God's people away from serving him and lead them into idolatry. The Lord provided a reason why Israel was to remain distinct from ungodly people. He said, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Israel's very identity as God's chosen people, as his treasured inheritance, would be compromised if the people entered into close fellowship with their heathen neighbors. There's a warning for us all in this too, beloved. We read together from 2 Corinthians 6, about God's command not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is a practical example from agricultural life that would have spoken to God's people. A yoke is a sturdy wooden frame used to join together a pair of draft animals so they could pull a plow through the field. Yet for animals to properly plow a field, they need to be pulling in the same direction. If you yoke an ox and a donkey together, they will never be able to plow evenly through the field. They should not be yoked together because they're different in size, in temperament, in speed, in strength, and in endurance. Paul uses this example to show how wrong it is for a believer to be yoked to an unbeliever. A believer is someone who has faith in Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. A believer's primary goal in life is to give glory to God, to serve him with thankfulness and joy because of God's grace in Christ. He will serve God according to his word, forsake the world and crucify his own sinful flesh. He'll be a living member of the church. In contrast, an unbeliever is someone who does not have faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. His or her main goal in life is not to glorify God. He or she will not bother to attend worship services or to be part of the communion of saints. While many unbelievers may be nice people, they do not wholly submit themselves to God's word and to his service. An ox and a donkey cannot pull and work in unison. They're at cross purposes with each other. The same is true for the yoking together of a believer and an unbeliever. 
There are such vast differences between them, they cannot pull and work together. At least not in the things that matter. Believers and unbelievers have totally different perspectives on life. Their priorities are different. Ultimately, if they try walk together, they will be at cross purposes. Now, beloved, this does not mean we cannot live in the midst of a society filled with unbelievers. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, he did not pray for the Father to take us out of this world. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul also makes it clear. It's impossible to live in this world without associating with the people of this world. God does not call us to physically separate ourselves from the people of the world by living in monasteries or in colonies. But he does warn us not to bind ourselves in permanent, close, or deep relationships with unbelievers. We should not become members of a militant trade union for we do not agree with standing in solidarity with union mates in an adversarial relationship with our employer. We should be careful about signing franchise agreements as they may require us to work on Sunday or engage in advertising that we disagree with. We need to be careful about entering into a business partnership with someone who does not share our faith. Or if you bind yourself to a partnership agreement with an unbeliever, often you end up in conflict because you hold different perspectives and values. One of the greatest areas of danger for us as Christians is to bind ourselves in love with an unbeliever. Christian men and women are not free to marry or to consider marriage to an unbeliever. The reason why we're called to marry in the Lord becomes clear when looking, to, when looking at the primary purpose of marriage. It is for husband and wife to live together in sincere love and holiness, to help each other faithfully in all things that belong to this life and the life to come. If you don't share the same faith, you cannot help and support one another in the service of God. Beloved, we also need to be careful about the decisions we make in life. We may be presented with a great job opportunity, but if we move away from the church, our faith may be compromised. We may not be fully satisfied with something happening in our local church, but leaving it often results in a break in close fellowship with family members and friends who would otherwise hold us accountable for how we walk with God. When faced with such decisions, we need to carefully consider if our choices are based on what we want or if they're based on what God teaches us in his word. This brings us to our final point, and it will consider the need for close fellowship with God. Jacob had been through a tough 20 years away from home. He had to work hard in order to be allowed to marry Rachel, and he stayed on to earn his own flocks and herds. He now feels like it's okay for him to settle down 
and to put up his feet. He builds a house at Sakoth and later buys land at Shechem. But where was God in Jacob's life? He was not obedient to God's command to return to Bethel and did not fulfill the vows he made before leaving for Uncle Laban's place in Haran. One of the striking things about Genesis 34 is that God is not mentioned, not even once. Jacob does not seek fellowship with God. The beginning of Genesis 35 tells us of how Jacob commands his family members to put away the foreign gods that were among them. This shows that members of his household were active in worshiping other gods. The Bible makes it clear that we often reap what we sow. The events that happen in our text are consequences of living a life apart from God. On the one hand, we can say that God allows Jacob and his household to suffer the consequences of not living in close fellowship with God. It's like God is showing his people Israel what happens when you forsake the Lord and try to live life your way. All the sorry events of our text happened because of Jacob and his family's unfaithfulness to the Lord, because they did not live in close communion with God. There's a warning in that, also for us today. Yeah, beloved, on the other hand, it's wrong to assume that God is truly absent from his people during this time. Jacob, like Lot in an earlier time, was in the process of being assimilated into a pagan culture. By settling so near to the Hivites, he was in danger of becoming one with them. Yet God did not allow that to happen. Shechem is fully responsible for raping Dinah. And Simeon and Levi will have to bear Jacob's curse for being violent and bloodthirsty men. Yet God used their sins to set Jacob's family apart from the Hivites so he could fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is really significant that God's name is not mentioned in our text. The absence of God speaks. Sometimes silence speaks louder than words. Dinah is one of the central characters of our text. She was raped and humiliated. Yet we do not hear Dinah's voice. She never speaks. Neither do we hear the voice of Dinah's mom, Leah, or of any of Dinah's sisters. They're absent from this story. The men of Shechem are slaughtered, the women and children taken as part of the plunder. Yet despite losing their husbands and fathers, also their voices are not heard. Isn't that often how it goes in life, beloved? It often happens that those who are assaulted or raped 
remain silent. It happens that the needy and the oppressed are unheard. Yet when we hear stories bankrupt of God's presence, we must also hear Psalm 56 verse 8 speak. The psalmist confesses, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The tears of the suffering in this world are not forgotten. God takes note of our tears. He records our misery in his book. Our text is filled with gross injustice. Shechem raping Dinah and Simeon and Levi exacting revenge by wiping out the unsuspecting men of Shechem. The world in which we live today is filled with injustice. At times it seems to us like God is absent when people do horrible things to one another. Yet in our text, God was preserving the covenant line. For it was through Abraham's son that all the families of the earth would be blessed. We may know that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save the needy and the oppressed who put their trust in him. And how would Jesus do that? By suffering the worst injustice imaginable. Jesus was the righteous Son of God. He never sinned. He lived his whole life in perfect obedience to his Father's commands. And yet he was the man of sorrows. He was often hungry, homeless, marginalized. And falsely accused. Though innocent, he was found guilty. Here, beloved, the sounds of fist meeting flesh. Of whips coming down on Jesus' bare back. Of soldiers and others jeering Jesus. See him with hands outstretched. Nailed to a cross. Jesus bore much of his suffering in silence. At the end of his life, he cried out in deepest agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering of this world is not lost on our Emmanuel. He knows it. He suffered God's eternal wrath against all our sins to set us free from our sins and from all the effects of sin. Jesus came to restore us to fellowship with God, to allow us to experience true peace, lasting joy, and a living hope. In this life, there are times when we mourn and suffer. 
and when we grieve with those who do. In this life, there will only be more and more oppression, violence, and injustice. Jesus is the answer to the problems this life brings. For it's in him and through him that it's possible for us to live in close fellowship with God, now and forevermore. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing together. We'll sing from Psalm 119, stanzas 22 and 24. Mm -hmm. 